Welcome to Soberly Ever After, the podcast that inspires you to live your own happy ever after by embracing sobriety. I'm Jenna and my co-host is Leslie and each week we'll be sharing our journeys, interviewing others, and exploring the reasons why sober life is a better life. Amy Miranda is a wonder witch, a medium, and a spiritualist who demystifies the mystical. Before being called to service and healing work, Amy spent over 20 years in media as an internationally awarded executive producer. She has produced projects for clients from Nickelodeon, Paramount Pictures, and Red Bull, and for artists like Kid Koala and Pee Wee Herman. A few years into the launch of her creative company, Lunch Inc., the traumas of her life caught up to her. She triumphed over trauma and transmuted poison to power. Amy likes to say trauma ran in the family until it ran into her. Amy is the great-great-granddaughter of a circuit preacher and is also a hereditary witch. This potion helps her bring a unique and fun perspective to spirituality, shining a new light on the old ways. In her healing practice, Amy conducts creative healing ceremonies with clients around the world to help remind them how to reclaim their magic and authentic power. Her wonder workshop and retreat, What We've Forgotten, is described as life-changing, and her first book is being published in December. I connected to Amy through a group of writers and soon grew to see what a magical person she is. Her spirit and smile are truly contagious. When I see Amy's posts, they remind me of my truest self, or what some might call your inner child, the person who believes in more than meets the eye. It is so easy to see why Amy is magical. She reminds you of magic, and I am so happy to have her here today. We will be discussing her sober story, and the theme at hand will ultimately be her spiritual awakening and spirituality. So if you're into the spiritual realm, today's episode will be your cup of magic tea. With that, hello, Amy, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. It's so nice to be here, and uh, thank you for the amazing introduction. So happy to have you here today. Thank you. Thank you. I'm grateful. I spent a lot of time because, you know, I think the a lot of us are used to sort of working on our mind, you know, whether it's therapy or meditation or working on our bodies with, you know, Pilates, working out, etc. And most of the time we're not working on our energy. So it's nice to hear that the work that I'm doing in spirit is working, you know? <laughs> yeah, it, it really is. I mean, and I just, I, I truly mean it about your smile. There's just something about you that just, you you are a light and it is very apparent. So. Thank you so much. I didn't smile for a long time, so that means a lot to me. Thank you. Aw. Okay, yeah. so that would be a good introduction. Um, so I have never spoken with you and I'm so excited to hear about your sober story um what struggles you went through i'm not sure if it was alcohol or something else that you ended up struggling with but if you want to just go into um into your story that would be great absolutely um yeah i was one of those people who um you know i'm a set i was born in 1978 so we didn't really talk about therapy we didn't talk about addiction we didn't we just you know i think a lot of us growing up in gen x we just sort of took what was going on around us as the gospel and there was a lot of addiction in the 80s there was a lot of excess um and you know whether it was on tv or around me um it was just sort of it was a thing right like cocaine was something that people talked about um, drinking was something that people were doing, you know, it, people were smoking in cars still. And, you know, I remember my mom telling me that she smoked in the hospital after she had me. So it was culturally, you know, not something I was ever really conscious of until I was conscious of it. Um, so my, you know, sobriety story is 
I danced with a lot of different addiction. My first addiction, I mean, the first thing that I got into was alcohol because it was accessible. And I started, I mean, I think I gave one of my older cousins their first drink. So I, <laughs> I, as soon as I could access it, I was, and no one ever thought to, I mean, I don't think many people knew what I was doing, but I think that was sort of an indication that, you know, there was some trauma. Um, and then I ended up going to high school. And as soon as I could get access to, you know, whatever there was, I was trying to get access to it. So definitely sort of began with cannabis and then ran the whole gamut. I grew up in the rave scene, so definitely uh, used MDMA and then ended up basically having a really terrible car accident um, and almost and I wasn't under the influence, but I mean, I think when you're under the influence, you're always kind of under the influence, you know, when you're in addiction, whether you're actively, you know, high or drunk versus, you know, not being so, I think, you know, your judgment is definitely off. So I ended up in a car accident um, coming out of high school and that was a big wake up call. One of my good friends was in the car with me and I mean, we shouldn't have walked away. Um, and that was the first time where I realized, okay, I'm, I'm self-medicating. Um, and I did some therapy and then ended up not even a year later, my best friend died in a car accident. And that was sort of um, a big turning point for me because I really looked at, I think if I wouldn't have been sober at that point, I would have probably, you know, tried to take my life. It was that um, egregious of a tragedy for me. Um, and then I ended up kind of <laughs> getting addicted to work uh, and ended up working in media and advertising, which is, they're known for their excess. I mean, there's a whole show about it, you know, Mad Men. Um, and that hasn't changed, right? There's still, a, there's a culture of that. Um, so that was the perfect place for me, a recovery addict. Um, so I ended up, and I hadn't acknowledged that I was in recovery. Um, I hadn't really named anything by that point. I just got addicted to work. And then once I was in an environment where things were accessible, I was like, oh, this is fantastic. And I worked on a beer account, which didn't help. Um, and really ended up um, kind of having a come to Jesus moment where and I say that, you know, literally and figuratively, but it was a moment where I thought, you know, what am I doing? And there was sort of, you know, several synchronicities that lined up where I realized that I was medicating something. Um, and I started doing trauma work. Um, and sort of, I mean, the first thing I did was I stopped drinking. After, I mean, I had come off of hard drugs by then. Um, but I, the last, sort of the last stand was alcohol. Um, and for me, as I started to kind of get into the spiritual um, pool or ocean uh, of consciousness, it just, it didn't go um, with sort of where I was headed. Um, so I don't, I feel like I could talk about this for an hour. Um, so I don't, I mean, I think in terms of the, you know, the sobriety story, it was really trial and error until it wasn't, um, until I realized that it was going to take my life, whether it was that because I was actively using, because of the places it took me in terms of, you know, dark places, or, you know, just the poor judgment, um, which now, you know, being in recovery, it's like, I know, you know, I think it's, a, you know, we don't make excuses, um, but there's a reason now where I look back and I was like, oh, I was surrounded by, you know, poor decisions because that was how, you know, I had, I had grown up keep, you know, keeping secrets. So I'm a trauma survivor. Um, I'm a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. My father is my abuser. Um, and so for me, finally naming that was the big thing that sort of changed, um, you know, the trajectory of not just my life, but my career, um, you know, my spiritual practice, kind of ending up being rooted in something to find meaning. Um, you know, there's a great book, uh, Victor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning. Um, but it's true, right? The, the roots of when you go through a trauma and sort of looking at what the side effects of the trauma are realistically. And I mean, one of the side effects is addiction. So that was a big realization for me. And I think a big part of, you know, me claiming the title of realizing that I was an addict and that, you know, I was going to be in recovery for the rest of my life. Ta-da! You know, oh I like to thank <laughs> I like to joke around because my story's heavy. Um, but I think, you know, it's light work is what I do. And, you know, levity helps with these kinds of um, topics.
But I think it's also a part of surviving, right? And being in recovery is you kind of have to have a sense of humor because we've danced with, you know, such uh, a devastating illness. Amy, <laughs> there's so many things running in my head. Like, I I don't even know where to start. Um, oh, no. This is the problem I have with my own life. <laughs> I wrote a whole long book. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Wow. I'm trying to gather my thoughts. Leslie, if you already have your thoughts together, you can go ahead. Like, I'm You mentioned light work a couple of times. Can you kind of go in and explain that a little bit? Yeah, of course, because I, I kind of talked about sobriety and then I went into, you know, the practice. So for me, I mean, I grew up on Star Wars, okay? So I, I'm i going to relate a lot of stuff to the Force um, and Star Wars and the idea of Jedis. And I, when I was a kid, I mean, I think, you know, growing up in dark places um, with what was going on, and, but also just like growing up with Star Wars, it was really, you know, my father was worse than Darth Vader. So I grew up really loving magic and, you know, this idea of like light and space. And um, it, it made me really nerdy. Um, and when I was in production, I mean, I, the primary stuff that I was doing was technology and digital production. So I was an IT manager. I was a super nerd. Still am. Um, and for me, a lot of... Um, the idea about energy and having an energetic field and a soul, I had just sort of accepted that that was, I grew up Catholic, um, but I had just sort of accepted that that was a, a component of who I was, whether I was, you know, believing in God at the time or not, or whatever we want to call it, creator, spirit, source, artist number one. Um, but for me, it was, there was always this idea of magic. And I grew up um, in a family that they did not, <laughs> growing up, they didn't call themselves witches, but they would, like, my grandmother and my mother and my great-grandmother would, like, sit at the table after dinner and talk about, like, talking to spirits and angels and stuff that they saw. And so by the time I was getting older, I was like, you guys are, like, you guys are witches. And, of course, they were like, it's angels. And I'm like, it doesn't matter. Like, you guys are talking to spirits and stuff. So uh, there was always this sort of undercurrent of, spirituality around me um and then once i got into recovery i ended up kind of my spiritual path included try and my healing journey included trying everything i mean i was really at a point where i was like you know i felt like i was too broken to be fixed and so i had gone to traditional therapy psychotherapy all kinds of stuff and i finally ended up going to see uh the man who became my teacher and he was it, it was explained to me that he was a shaman and that's sort of a note about that work is, you know, most times a practitioner of shamanic healing doesn't call themselves a shaman. The community calls them that. So, like, my clients may call me that. I've trained in shamanic healing. But, like, I don't refer to myself as that because it's sort of seen as being egotistical. Um, I told you I was nerdy. Um, so this the light work piece really came from me starting to entertain the idea that a lot of the addiction component of my healing journey was with regard to trauma and that it was because of not only my body being affected or my mind being affected, but like my energetic, my soul was affected by what happened to me. So I entertained this idea that, well, maybe I could get like, maybe I've lost some of my force, you know, my life force, and maybe there's a way to get it back. Um, and I'm also a film nerd and went to film school and there's a movie called The Hidden Fortress by um, Akira Kurosawa who's an amazing Japanese director but George Lucas has said you know that Star Wars um, A New Hope was really based on that movie but set in space um, and you know that movie's rooted in Japan and from Japan comes Reiki which is working with life force energy so I started to get kind of nerdy about the spiritual part of my adventure and um, this idea of light work and that if we are kind of made of star stuff, which science shows that we are, that we carry light and that maybe if we're having, you know, energetic challenges as a result of trauma, including addiction, maybe there's a way to heal it using life force energy. So which is light work. Um, which has existed for, you know, thousands and thousands of years. I always say the pyramids are, you know, arrows pointing at the sky. 
So, you know, we've always been trying to give each other clues to, you know, the light being sort of a key to our existence on this planet. Um, so it definitely sort of came into play as I was, you know, both getting st sober and staying sober. Um, whether it was thinking about, you know, my higher self or higher power or, you know, just something more intelligent than me. Um, and because I had had some amazing sort of synchronicities go on in my life and times where I probably shouldn't have continued to be here, um, I had by that point sort of realized that, you know, there was a rationale for the reason that I was still on the planet. Um, so, and now I kind of, I work with, I, I don't kind of, I do um, work with other people to kind of remind them of the, of the same thing um, of, you know, re reclaiming that authentic power energetically. Um, I think a lot of, you know, what exists, especially when people are getting sober is, you know, mindfulness, body work. But I think, you know, the spiritual component is such a key and the energetic component, really. Um, I always say it's a massage for the soul, right? Energy work. Um, and sometimes that's what we need, right? After um, walking through the trauma of addiction. And most of the time, the first addict in the family isn't you. Um, so that was part of my work too, was really sort of tracing that lineage and figuring out where it started. And I do say, you know, it stopped with me because I was, I think, one of the first people to yell it out <laughs> on both my sides of the family where I was like, guys, like we've got some, you know, ancestral trauma here. Um, and no one had ever dealt with it. Um, and I think, you know, it did trickle down. Um, so, and I talk about that in my book about some of the stuff just with regard to the layers of trauma and addiction and sort of, you know, how, how we can, how we can help each other trace that and get rid of it so that we can, you know, exist on the planet to the best of our ability versus sort of swimming in, you know, addiction and, um, the challenges of our ancestors, so to speak. That's amazing. I feel like um, sometimes I talk like this and then people will look at me like I'm insane. Yeah. Or they yeah. just, they're not there. They're not there yet. Right. And then, yeah. uh, then I, I've met people who are way beyond me and I look at them like they're crazy. Yeah. But then I can kind of like pick up little things like I understand what they're saying, but they're like on a totally different level. But oh, I yeah. feel like I'm kind of, I understand all of what you just said, which makes me happy. And it also makes me happy that I've kind of connected with somebody who kind of speaks the same way I do. <laughs> like, I believe in everything you just said. I grew up in the same era. My parents kind of the whole same thing. So it all makes full sense to me. Yeah. And I always called it like fractures in your soul. Like, yes, when you have a trauma, there's like your soul is fractured and it's trying yeah. to retrieve it and refill it. Whether it's not like you can't, you can't like um, go back to your original soul, but you can mend it and make it strong again. But um, that's where I say you can. That's where I say you can go back to the original. So oh, you can. Okay. What got me so into specifically like shamanic healing is I always say to my clients, it's like we're a bottle. We come into the planet like a bottle of water, right? We've got a certain amount of energy inside our system, inside our vessel. And then stuff happens to us and some gets spilled, right? Stuff, and we call that in shamanic practice, power loss or soul loss, um, soul fragmentation, where we end up having energy that essentially leaves the vessel. And I think we've all been taught like, oh, you know, especially, I mean, I grew up Catholic and, you know, whatever we want to say about that, it wasn't about inclusivity or, um, you know, innocence really it was always about like what did you do wrong right i remember going to confession when i was pretty little and being like i haven't done anything yet um and, you know it was part, that was part of it um but i think this the idea in in terms of shamanic teachings which have, has existed in pretty much every culture on the planet for thousands of years is that we can pull back that power but i think we get taught most of us in the western world get taught you know that doesn't happen until you're dead and, you know, and I think <laughs> I have a theory about, you know, the way um, intelligence has sort of moved around on our planet. And there's a lot of people who I think don't want people to get better. Right. And that's not to be like a conspiracy theorist. It's just, you know, sick people are easier to control. 
Whereas, you know, when people know who they are and become autonomous, we, you know, you can't change anybody's mind once they're sort of living in their soul purpose. So with shamanic healing, the idea is that with training, so a shamanic practitioner, shaman, and this has gone on for, again, in different cultures for thousands of years, was the, you know, medicine man or medicine woman of the village and would take care of any community illness. And we've sort of lost that practice, and that practice is now being shared, you know, more widely. Teachers, wisdom keepers are traveling and teaching, you know, ceremony like soul retrieval ceremony, which is exactly what you just said, right? This idea of actually retrieving the power that was lost due to the trauma. So I can say, I mean, I've probably had, I don't know, five or six soul retrievals at this point. Um, and I would not be where I am without, you know, that bit of, you know, magic, which it is magic, right? It's not, if we go to a surgeon, we know that they're working with physical, you know, elements of our body versus if you go to, you know, a healer, an ener energy worker, a light worker, you're kind of, you know, hoping that they know what they're doing when they're working with your energetic field. And that's where, you know, training and all of that stuff is really important. Um, and not just learning something off of YouTube. Um, but I think this idea of being able to restore power, being able to reclaim power um, versus bringing back the trauma, um, I think is not only, you know, it's empowering, but it also, I mean, it works. Um, it's what caused me to, you know, quit my job working as an executive producer, essentially. I mean, I still do that work, but it's changed, obviously, considerably with the kind of work that I'm interested in. Um, and shifting focus to really working with people in recovery, people who've survived trauma, which, you know, let's be honest, is pretty much everyone these days. Um, and reminding people that we can feel that way again. And it doesn't have to be when we leave the planet, you know? And I think that's what sort of sucked me into light work was, you know, it, at first glance, you know, I was sort of, you know, I had tried all these different healing modalities and then I went and laid on someone's floor for an hour and I felt so much better and I could not understand what had happened so that was sort of what got me on the whole spiritual path was i ended up you know asking my teacher out for lunch um and being like how did you do that like what was that um and kind of going down the rabbit hole of you know traditional medicine um and with the type of shamanism i practice i mean it's just a drum it's just percussion um which makes sense now i think why i was in the rave scene um <laughs> up against the speakers um, because it was, you know, it, it was a, there was healing happening. Um, so that's, I, you know, I've gone, I've gone from producing, you know, short films and TV campaigns and stuff for people to, you know, drumming for people and ideally doing work on their soul, which is far more rewarding. Um, it doesn't pay as well, certainly, um, <laughs> as working in advertising. Um, but you know, the, the soul work is what's worth it, I think. And that was sort of what had me completely change direction and also, you know, commit myself to this sort of path of sobriety. And when I work with clients, I mean, we are told as part of ceremony, like you can't, you know, my clients can't drink. So it's part of, you know, if somebody books a, you know, big ceremony with me, you know, it's, I, I recommend that there's no alcohol the day before or the day of or the day after. So, and I think a lot of people who end up having spiritual awakenings end up sort of putting alcohol down and then being like, oh, is that why I stopped drinking? But I think energetically, because it's processed, it just, um, it doesn't seem to vibrate with people who are high vibrating spiritually. So, like, I think now if I had a drink, I'd probably just be sick. So, um, for a variety of reasons, obviously, but I think, you know, I just don't think it would agree with my energy system, which I know sounds very woo-woo. Um, but, you know, I think that's part of the, you know, the path that I'm on is pretty woo-woo. So, Well, you probably don't need it to mask some of those feelings that you were having because of the trauma anyway. Oh, yeah. 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 I, th I think it was definitely the masking was a huge part of it. And a huge part of my spiritual journey, too, was sort of there's a story in the book um, about you know, when I was sort of unmasking myself and I was at the crossroads of my addiction and all these amazing omens that showed up for me to just remind me that, you know, 
it's not about things being bad or good. It's about things being in balance or not when it comes to your energetic system. And some people do not have these problems, right, with substances or they don't have that predisposition, just like some people aren't allergic to peanuts. Um, and I think that's the kind of um, discussion that we all need to be having more around addiction is, you know, the why. Because whenever people tell me that they have someone in their life that's struggling with addiction I'm like okay great like let's get out the you know the, the magnifying glass because we're gonna find out where this started um because typically you know again it doesn't start with the person who's got the addiction currently it usually, usually starts in the family or it starts with an event um so and I think that's something that you know I didn't grow up ever hearing that you know, and so all these kids today, I sound really old, but all these kids today who are actually having these conversations and have this understanding that addictions attached to other things is really amazing because I think it shows how much progress has happened um, in this, you know, in the Generation X generation of parenting. Because um, I think we all, you know, imparted in our kids. I don't have kids, but I have ne nieces and nephews. But we imparted in them that, you know, these are things that are okay to talk about. And like if so-and-so has too much to drink, it's okay to say, hey, that guy had too much to drink. Whereas when I was a kid, I mean, we just didn't talk about that. You might see it, you know, at a family get-together or whatever, but we didn't name it. You know, like uncle so-and-so had too much to drink. It wasn't something that we talked about. Whereas I think kids are a lot more attuned now. I, I know with my friends' kids, you know, I have a lot of friends who are also in recovery and their kids are extremely intelligent when it comes to, you know, what's having fun and what's not. So, and I think that's also something that needs to be discussed because kids are going to try stuff. So, and I think that's a natural part of growing up, right? It's just about like, you know, what are you trying and let's make sure we're communicating versus, you know, I think a lot of the stuff that I was doing, you know, I was actively trying to, you know, harm myself by doing, you know, excessive amounts of things. Or, and that was the first clue, right? It was, you know, it's like a, it's a giant red flag I was waving. Um, but I was also really good at making it seem like everything was under control. So, yeah, I think that's part of the, the addiction is being able to, you know, mask and being able to kind of play different roles until you can't, right? Until somebody sees it or someone, you know, spots you in the morning throwing up or whatever it ends up being, right? So I think that's part of it too is, you know, how does it manifest? So I'm curious and I don't think that you said this, but perhaps you did, but um, it's just like I have a hundred questions and I could... I feel like, yeah, it'd be so fun to talk to you forever, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but so was it like for you, because you were kind of aware and you were, you know, spiritually connected maybe more so than others, or you had that like in your DNA. So was, um, becoming sober sort of a cold turkey thing that you did or did well, you, sorry? It was. Sorry, I interrupted oh. your question. Oh, oh, no, no, it's fine. Um, yes, it was very much. I, I when I just, I mean, when I stopped doing hard drugs, I mean, it was, it was obvious that I was going to kill myself. I mean, it was obvious that that was the trajectory. I had totaled my car. I was just making really bad decisions, whether I was high or not. And that was, I mean, I was in high school. People knew, I mean, people talked about it, I think. I had, one of my best friends had to write my exam for me because I, had, you know, had stitches in my arm. Like, I was a train wreck. Um, and then when my best friend passed away, I had already, you know, kind of cold turkey after I had my car accident. I had stopped um, using. And I wasn't really drinking. That wasn't really, at that point, it wasn't really the problem. And it was chemicals. Um, and then after she passed away, it sort of rooted my sobriety more in this kind of idea. It wasn't, I mean, I think looking back, it wasn't, it was never the right reasons to get sober. Um, but, you know, at the time they were enough reason that I stopped doing what I was doing, which I think probably saved my life in many ways. Um, but when I got back, to using it was you know alcohol and cocaine in the advertising and media industry for sure 
Um, and with that, it was the same. It was cold turkey. Um, with the drinking, that was sort of the last thing to go. The cocaine had to go because there were so many dangerous people around me. Um, and that was the real eye-opener for me was, you know, how am I in this position where, you know, I was very successful in an industry that's really competitive. Uh, and I was a woman in that industry and a mouthy woman at that because that hasn't changed. I was probably more mouthy when I was drinking. Um, but the, the drugs, it was so clear that it was just getting closer and closer to me. And there was no excuse as to how, you know people that were dangerous should be that close to me in my life. And it was because of drugs, right? I think that's the thing that, you know, people don't talk about. I remember when I met my publisher um, and we talked about, you know, um, our mutual stories and I was like, oh, great, because she's in recovery. And it was great because she's also, you know, she's very successful in business and, you know, that looks a certain way. Um, so we had a lot of laughs about being glad that we had, you know, met now versus when we were actively using, um, cause I don't think any books would have been published at all. Um, we've talked about and made up a lot of books. Um, but when it came to alcohol, it was definitely a cold Turkey. And that, by that point, I think I was sort of far enough along on the spiritual journey to be able to really root into why I was doing it and, you know just this idea of, you know, not being able to be of service in the way people deserve if that's in my system in any capacity. Um, so that was sort of, you know, I never went to, you know, 12 step. I never, um, I definitely have a lot of peer support when it comes to the, um, childhood sexual abuse, you know, community, um, which I think helps a lot with recovery because a lot of those people are in recovery. So I think, you know, peer support is crucial, whether it's, you know, 12 step traditional or whether it's, you know, getting um, specific, you know, peer support for specific trauma that has led to the addiction. Um, but I think, you know, even though I'm a woo woo lady, <laughs> I believe in having, you know, on the ground support as much as in spirit support because that's where the problem is right the problem is usually not a spiritual problem we might have energetic loss that's caused having a deeper level of addiction um for me i was actively trying to you know fill up a gap that i had in my soul um but i think you know that's not always what's behind the addiction so i think you know looking at making sure that there's sort of a holistic program whether it's something formal or something that's peer driven you know and not formal I think you know it's all up to what people need and for me I was like very anti-authority in any capacity so like going to treatment or 12 step like I <laughs> I don't think it would have been good for anybody um so I think and that was part of my own you know healing that I've had to do about you know surrender and releasing control um, but I had to look at everything in my life when I got sober, including, you know, was I an executive producer because I liked power and control and, you know, because of how I grew up. And the answer was yes. Right. I mean, yeah, I, I sure was. Um, so being able to put those things down and, you know, realize that I like creating, but it doesn't have to be in the same capacity that, you know, it was when I was, you know, in my trauma or in the throes of addiction. Because that's ego, right? Like, there's that's such a an ego-driven, yeah, decision. Um, even just sort of, yeah, being in that space where you're around other people that are using in an industry that's full of that um, definitely complicates what sobriety looks like. Yeah, I have, like, this mixture of thoughts going around in my head because I one of the questions that I had written ahead of time for you dealing with, like, creativity... It's kind of like a two-sided thing because when I lived in LA and when I was around like more so the people with money versus like the starving artists, yeah. um, the people with money were always doing drugs. And oh, yeah. So, yeah. so I see that. And sharing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I don't know. I, I'm not, I'm still unsure like why that is so potent among like wealthy people but um sign of the, abundance like i think it goes back to this whole 80s 
I think a lot of those people grew up thinking that that was a sign of power and abundance, right? Especially, okay, right? I think that was seen as, whether it was Scarface, I mean, it was in the pop culture realm as being a sign of, the, of you know, people who have money do this. Um, and I think, I mean, for me, I had always sworn, you know, I was like, it's, you know, my father struggled with addiction and he would never tell you that because he would never tell the truth. Um, <laughs> he, th this idea of, um, you know, cocaine being uh, some kind of like networking fuel. And I think in many ways for a lot of people, it is. Um, but realizing that it was also, you know, a lot of the people who work in those industries suffer from childhood trauma. So I, I think, you know, for me, it started to just become a science experiment or I'd be like, you know, at these industry events, even when I was sober and seeing things or hearing things and wanting to yell out like, who here grew up with childhood drama? Um, you know, which is not a popular joke, but it's I think, you know, it's part of that culturally what we've grown up with as being cool. And, you know, I think even though, you know, we got taught that like crack was whack, but cocaine was cool. <laughs> No, it's like it's not, neither of them are good at all. Right. But I think um, this idea of and even this, you know, say no to drugs. I mean, I never got no one ever tried to give me drugs until I was in a certain circle of, you know, wealth. And then all of a sudden everyone had too much. And I was like, wait a minute. So I experienced the same thing. Right. This idea of, you know, and especially after I had grown up in the rave scene and, you know, Everyone was constantly trying to find drugs and then being, you know, in media and being like, oh, wow, here they are. Here's all the drugs that we were looking for when we were in our oh team. God. Um, so I think, you know, and I think it's still and it's like, a, a, a you know, it's a it's a it, it's a joke right in the industry. But it's also not funny um, because I think there's a lot of, you know, un, um, you know. I, I was I want I was gonna say unrequited but unhealed addiction right unhealed trauma um and these people seem to collect in specific industries I mean that's certainly what I found um and you know I think that's part of what you know the overarching you know cultural issue we have right now right is people are medicated um so and I think that's just you know the world that we're living in um, but I think it's about, you know, having conversations about, you know, what role is this playing in your life? Um, and that's where I still, I mean, that's the checkpoint for me, right? Like what role are things playing in my life? Whether it's, you know, cause I'm one of those people, I can get addicted to anything, right? Whether it's like, you know, a new TV show or whatever it is, it's like, I'll get right into it. Chips, whatever, right? <laughs> Mood. Um, but, and I think that's where the check is. It's like, you know, I think getting into a practice spiritually where it's like, what am I feeding? Right. What am I, what am I doing? You know, is this like a fun Saturday night where I'm going to have a bag of chips or am I doing this every day? Right. Which during the pandemic, I definitely ate chips every day. Um, but I think that's, it's the same with, you know, any kind of, um, any kind of recovery, right. It's, it's having that sort of mindfulness and, you know, energetic practice to be like, you know, where am I at? And am I filling up, you know, a tank with something that, you know, isn't going to help me in, you know, 24 hours. Um, so, yeah, I think that's from for me where sort of the spiritual path was part of the recovery path was just recognizing that, you know, <laughs> I certainly knew how to make bad decisions and I needed some assistance, you know, making some good ones and that if I was going to change it was going to be, you know, recognizing that there was something smarter than me um, and sort of leaning into that and letting go of the ego stuff um, and doing the work, right? W walking through the trauma and actually dealing with it so that I could smile and so that I could, you know, have a good time again. Um, but I think, you know, that's part of what recovery is so hard about recovery is a lot of times you can't even imagine what's on the other side because it's become your whole life. Um, and you know, that's where I'm like, it's great, right? On the other side is great. Um, but it's definitely, you know, you gotta be ready to do the work. Um, and I think that's part of the challenge, right? Is a lot of people don't have the support, um, or a community or resources to be able to feel like, you know, 
they're going to be do be able to do it on their own. Yes. Yeah. Just listening to that. I think, I think for me, it was like no one around me was struggling with the same issue. So I just had no, everyone was doing fine and being, and they were all able to drink a moderate amount and, and be normal drinkers. And I just had no one to really connect with on it. Um, but before we get past the last topic, I do want to ask you the question that I had, which was, so I'm sure you've kind of answered it, but I think it's, I think it's a little different, but it's that, you know, being an artist, whether it's a writer or a musician or an actor, um, it is like pretty spiritual. Um, and oftentimes artists turn to some sort of drug, whether it be alcohol or something else. Um, and they tell themselves that the drug will help us creatively. I know that I used to do that. I used to be like, I'm going to write tonight. I'm going to have some drinks. It's going to, it's going to help me. And then I got to a point where it was, <laughs> I was never writing anymore. Like never. It took away my creativity, but I do know, um, I still know some very talented, we'll say people and um, like extremely talented, but still stuck in that mindset of like, I need to have those drinks or I need to smoke in order to like get to that place. So my question for you is, why do you think that artists are like, feel that it's going to help them and how do you think they can get around that and let go of that like very strong belief that it's going to help them yeah it's a great question I think it's the ritual I think that's what it is I think it's the ritual behind it I think artists I mean you know that's the most fun I've had in my life is working with other artists and collaborating with artists and I've been lucky enough to be able to work with tons um and the thing that I know is they like <laughs> they have their own way of being right I mean I think most of us know that you know creatives have a reputation for being weirdos whether you're you know an artist a musician um a writer right we all have an archetype of being you know lovable weirdos um and i think part of that is we're all pretty particular um we have a ritual to the way that we create we have things that we like things that we don't like we have ways that we sort of you know get inspired and the things we need to do to be able to get inspired so i think the ritual of the drink or you know the joint or, you know, whatever those things may be, it's more about the idea that it's a ritual than it is about, I mean, that's what, because for me, it was always like, oh, I'll smoke some cannabis and then I'll be able to, you know, and then it <laughs> it works until it doesn't. Um, and I think that's the thing about this idea of creativity being, you know, partly divinity, right? It's, I think, especially for musicians, you know, they're pulling in music, I think, right? They're kind of channeling it. And I think with writing too and fine art, like there's an element of channeling the spiritual where kind of we get, you know, the spirit of creativity kind of takes over and we end up, you know, coming up with great stuff and sometimes not great stuff. Um, but we get into that zone of being creative. And I think that's as much a ritual too. So when you kind of combine forces like you know the alchemist that a creative person typically is whether it's like oh i'm gonna have like i know the same people who are like you know militant about how many coffees they need to have before they write or before they do pages or before so whether it's caffeine or alcohol or cannabis or a mixture of those things you know i think it's all about the ritual and it can be replaced with other rituals right and i mean i am one of those people that you know, I joke and I think it's ADHD, but I always have like three or four drinks at any given time on the go, like three different glasses of water, whatever it is. But it's all part of my weird, you know, rituals that I have to kind of keep myself moving creatively throughout the day. So I think that's I mean, I think that's where it comes from. And I also think this idea of getting outside of ego is a, why a lot of people will, you know, think that they need to have a drink or, you know, smoke a joint or whatever it is before they get into creative ideation space. 
And I mean, I certainly dealt with that, you know, in advertising and production where it's like, you know, you'd be working with a creative team and they'd be like, why don't we go for a drink and talk about this? And sometimes that works and sometimes that doesn't. But I think it was always more about the ritual of getting outside of the ego and being able to get into a space where like inhibitions were lower and where we were more open to being able to, you know, do creative work. So I think that's where it comes from, this idea of like somehow it loosens us up enough to get outside of ego. But that's where I say to creatives, like, you shouldn't be an ego anyway, right? I mean, you're not going to create any great stuff if you're constantly in judgment of your own work or somebody else's. Um, I love Rick Rubin, the producer. And, you know, that's a lot of what he talks about is this idea of just, you know, creating to create. Um, and I think a lot of, you know, culturally, we don't, live in a world really where it's acceptable to like sit and think about stuff you know i mean certainly when i was working in an office if i sat there and didn't do anything for an hour somebody would be upset about that and then if i said i was thinking i don't think that they would like that so i think it goes back to this you know culturally we're not encouraged to brainstorm or to sit and think about things and we have to make decisions really quickly um so creatively we don't tend to give ourselves enough room to be able to really, you know, get into a place without ego to create. And I think that's where people kind of feel that the, you know, alcohol or cannabis or caffeine or whatever it is, is going to help them to more quickly access that creative space. And I think that's a crapshoot. So I definitely used to think that I came up with better ideas when I was, you know, smoking a lot of cannabis. And I can say now that that is not true. <laughs> so... You know, that's, I can say that objectively, right? So it's, I think that's a lot of what ends up happening, right? And I think that's, I mean, I think about when I was in high school and hang out with certain people and you'd have inside jokes because you had watched something while you were high. And it's like that only, you know, lasts in the world for so long, I think. So, and I, I you know, I don't poo-poo on the process. I think, you know, if it works, it works. But I think, you know, from a addiction and recovery standpoint, you know, I definitely have come up with way better stuff um, in my sobriety than I ever did when I was using or drinking. Well, I love to hear that. That's good. And um, Leslie, I know that you probably have things brewing about the spirituality. She and I both love that stuff, and she has another podcast on it. So, Leslie? Well, I had a question about you talked about the ceremonies. So, is it are you helping people with addiction and then you go into a ceremony and then do they have a spiritual awakening? Like what is the process that you are helping people? And then how does that like go? And I'm just curious about the whole ceremony. Like, are they already in recovery by that point or can you explain that? A little bit? Yeah, of course. Um, for me, I mean, I like to kind of, I, I'm definitely have worked with people who, you know, are not yet in recovery or in, you know, their addiction. And, you know, that's one way of what working with people is getting them into recovery. Um, and then I also work with people who have been in recovery. So it really depends on how I meet any, you know, any individual client. So sometimes clients will come to me for, you know, a specific trauma or ailment, or they'll come and they'll just say, I haven't felt great in a long time. Right. Um, and with the work I do in terms of ceremony, I mean, there's not like there can be talking if people want talking, but that's not what it's about, really. It's about, you know, energetically us moving the energy around. Um, so it's based on, you know, their intention. So if someone comes to me and they're, you know, actively, you know, in trauma or, you know, are in recovery from trauma. And then, you know, I uncover that maybe there's some, you know, addiction issues going on. Um, there's a referral process that I go through um, with regard to, you know, if people are wanting to get treatment. I typically will not continue to work with someone once I know that they're in active addiction um, because that's not, I, that's not what they need, right? They need to stop, they need to stop using. Um, and then we can do the spiritual work. So once uh, usually I find out if someone's in, in active addiction, I, you know, am, would definitely and usually prioritize um, the actual recovery work and, you know, getting them sober and clean. 
because um, energetic work can open up stuff that if people are not, you know, grounded in recovery, that's not a good idea, right? I mean, people talk about shadow work and it's, it's, it's very real. Um, so, and then there's people that I work with who are, you know, on the recovery journey where this is, you know, we're working together to create, you know, more of a foundation for their practice. Um, so whether that's developing, and there's a bunch of practices in the book, um, but these ideas about actually, you know, how do we bring real practices into daily life, right? How do we protect our energy? How do we do all these things to try to prevent, you know, more soul loss or more soul fragmentation? Because, you know, the truth is we're alive on a planet and there's crabby stuff happening all the time. So it's more about, you know, how do we create a system um, a healthy system spiritually where we can, you know, work through those triggers, those, and actually respond with something other than addiction. Um, and with ceremony, I mean, a lot of work I, I do is extraction work, which is really, I mean, it's literally, you know, I call it like an energetic oil change. Um, it's literally, you know, running someone's energy through a filter, so to speak, um, and trying to, you know, reset um, the actual, you know, chemical makeup, which again, sounds wild. Um, but really trying to reset, um, the energy to, you know, remove those imprints, which I mean, I swear by it because it's how, you know, I walk in my power now. Right. I mean, it was a lot of these ceremonies that are thousands of years old, you know, I think are, you know, what I can say has, you know, completely changed my life. Um, and I wouldn't have believed it, right? I talk about that in the book as well. Like, I didn't walk in there being like, I'm going to get healed. Um, it was just, I was on the road and, you know, I had tried everything else. Um, and I was tired of ha having my, you know, nose against the road. And I thought, okay, well, what if I get better perspective and like, and, you know, get more of a 10,000 foot view of my own, you know, recovery. And that was where everything shifted. And it was like, okay, this makes a whole lot of sense. And I think because of what my background was in media and because I was such a, I mean, I was a producer who was constantly having to explain complex subjects to clients in order to produce things, it was easy for me to sort of, you know, demystify the mystical and be like, okay, here's how this is working, right? Like we're literally filtering your energy through some kind of amazing magic system and, you know, you're going to feel better in six to 12 months. Um, because shamanism, you know, in ceremony, it's not instant, right? Energy takes time to move. So, and I think that's also important in recovery is you, you go through a journey. You don't just end up, you know, at 90 days clean, right? You're conscious through the process of getting clean and knowing what that feels like and is like, and then, you know, starting to realize how it impacted relationships around you, et cetera. So, and the spiritual journey is very similar. So, um, yeah, I think that kind of relationship in terms of, you know, working with people in recovery, it's typically also about working with people to sort of reclaim their purpose. Because um, I think for a lot of us with addiction, the addiction becomes the purpose, right? It's all you're doing. Um, and then once you're in recovery, everything becomes about the recovery. But I think, you know, it should become about the purpose, right? Like, what's the meaning and what am I going to do with this? And I think that's why so many <laughs> former addict, addicts end up going into service, right? Whether it's working, you know, in recovery or, you know, getting involved with um, inpatient, whatever it is. I think a lot of us end up kind of wanting to get involved um, and bring more people out of the tunnel. It sounds like um, this work could also be really beneficial to people with like cancers and things of those sorts, because if I feel like sometimes, and I could be totally wrong, but if somebody um, is not living their true self, it could harbor or even feed into some of the cancers that are, we, that are around. Yep. And it sounds like the work that you do along with medicines and stuff could actually benefit people a lot better than just doing traditional medicines all on it on its own yep yep okay yeah absolutely i'm yeah i work there's a story in um the book a little bit about that 
but a lot of um, trauma survivors as well, right? They end up with cancer. Um, so there's a lot of links, right, in terms of healing, addiction, a lack of addiction, but maybe sort of, you know, self-harm internally that can cause illness. So, and this idea of it being an energetic imbalance, right? So, and I think, you know, a lot of times, you know, I've worked with people who have lived the healthiest lives, you know, all organic, all, and who, you know, leave the planet because of cancer and, you know, had unspoken trauma. So, and maybe never suffered with addiction, but, you know, maybe had some trauma buried in there that was stuck in their cells. And, you know, I think that's where if we get nerdy, right, the idea of everything's made of energy and everything's vibrating and moving. And when we get, you know, clenched up um, due to trauma or a fight, flight, fright, you know, we can literally stop, you know, the momentum of things. And, you know, what does that do to our body? Um, so a lot of, you know, the work I do is about, you know, releasing illness from the body and looking at, you know, where did the illness come from? Like I have a client who has long-term illness and we've started to realize that it's not originating in her body. So, you know, a lot of people who struggle with, um, you know, these long-term illnesses where people can't necessarily find out what exactly is going on, people struggling, it's like, and I had that experience myself where I had had some issues medically and as soon and we couldn't really figure it out. And then as soon as I named the trauma, it got resolved. And I remember saying to my doctor, like, is this a thing? Like, is this because I shared with her, like, this is what's going on in my life. And like, I've just named this big trauma. And now this all seems to be resolved. And I was like, have you heard of this? And she was like, yeah, it's a thing. So, like, doctors know, you know, they know that there's, you know, there can be healing physically from spiritual healing. Um, but I think, you know, again, it's like, it's not something that anyone's really been safe to talk about because it sounds nuts. Um, and I fully, you know, I know that, right? I, in having these conversations, I know how it sounds, but I also know that it works. So... Um, you know, and my clients know that it works and I wouldn't be doing this, right, if it didn't work. Um, but I think that there's that feeling of, you know, that we don't, you know, that we don't get to have magic or that magic isn't real. And it's like, no, it's totally real. There's a Bible full of it, you know. So and I think, you know, that's part of this idea that we've forgotten some of these things. We've forgotten about, you know, the wonder of miraculous healing. And, you know, I've seen it. So I think that's the stuff where, you know, people in recovery can get kind of evangelical about other people getting well. Um, but I think that's part of, you know, kind of finding, restoring the light in ourselves and wanting to make sure other people see it too, which I think is the best sort of side effect of recovery is, you know, the community that comes with it. Because um, it's so much stronger than, you know, a community of addicts. <laughs> It's a lot more efficient. Um, so, uh, and I think, you know, we're in times where I think it's becoming more acceptable for people to get help and ask for help and to be able to say, you know, hey, I have a problem or hey, I had a problem or I might have a problem. Um, and I think that's where, you know, being able to sort of shine our light and say, hey, you know, we're on a recovery journey. It helps other people to find the others. Even if that's someone who's, you know, in air quotes, a stranger, right? Being able to seek help um, or guidance or advice, right? And to be able to do a temperature check of where other people are at. I know that was a big one for me with managing my own, you know, use of things, whether it was cannabis or caffeine or whatever. Able to say to people, hey, this is what I'm doing daily. You know, how does that feel to you? And having people go, whoa. You know, and being able to be honest about that. And I think that's part of just living a healthy lifestyle, right? If I ate 14 bags of chips a day and told friends about it, I would want them to tell me, you know, not to do that. So even though I love chips, this is like an ad for chips. <laughs> Wait, no, Amy, like I love chips. So every time we <laughs> talk about them, I'm like, you're my sister, my chip sister. Like I love, I call myself a chip connoisseur. Yeah, me too. Or 
or no, not a chip connoisseur. What if I said, oh, a chipitarian? With I'm like, I'm not a vegetarian. I'm a chipitarian. You are a chip connoisseur. I can feel it. And we like in Canada, so we have like every kind of chip. So my partner was always like, how many chips do you have to try? I'm like, all of them, all of them. <laughs> you know, if this is a spiritual, like I'm a spirit having a physical experience, like I want to have as many chip flavors as I can. It's part of the experience of being on the planet Earth. So. Absolutely. Yeah, but yeah, I uh, I think you know it's it, it, part of it is just being open about you know with our our own people in our lives about you know what we're relying on for support and relying on peer support when it's not healthy. I, I just the one thing that's sticking out that I can't get rid of is um, magic is real and like every time you've said I'm a woo woo person. Um, and you know, I've said that sort of thing about myself too. And I know that Leslie is one as well, but to me, it's like, it's really not woo woo because um, it's real, it's it's the good stuff. And I think that the most amazing part about talking with you today is that, and it's really funny, but an image of like some Christmas movie came into my mind where they're all like, they're all having to believe in like, this is silly but santa claus in order for that sleigh to go back up in the air and i'm just thinking about how it just helps so much to have a community or like just a few friends that remind you of that magic is real because it 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 wakes you up and it like connects you closer to it so thank you so much yeah thank you my, it's my pleasure. And I think, I mean, the analogy I like to use about that is magic isn't going to spend its time. Like if we think of ourselves in a car with our windows up and everything, magic is not, if we're not giving it any room, it's not going to be able to get in. If we crack the window a little bit and invite it, you're going to experience a little bit more of it. And then the more you open to it and trust it, the more it comes in. And I think that's, you know, it's part of what we have forgotten is the idea of like what community can do energetically i mean there's all these stories in the bible about you know amazing healings and they all had groups of people so it's like well why don't we you know try this but i think again there's this sort of you know feeling of maybe it's not real but it is right just as yes. much as recovery is like we can change anything yes yes um for having me thank you and so we have um we have three questions that we like to wrap it up with with each person that we're talking to so we're gonna go ahead and ask you those so what is your favorite part about being sober the clarity the clarity okay. for sure yeah just the clear channel that it, you become and you know there's just not the same amount of noise I love how simple that is. It is so true. Okay, next, what is something special that helped you when you decided to quit? Um, it could be like a secret tool or something that someone might not know about. Is there anything that, I, I mean, I think I know the answer, some of the answers, but is there anything that comes to you when I say like, I think something that would help other people and it helped me a great deal and I didn't even know that I was doing it when I first started doing it was like people use crystals you can use a rock it doesn't have to be you know anything that you buy it can be something that you find or pick up but using it and having it as a replacement and also to hold intention right I mean rocks crystals etc can hold energy but putting in your intention of like, I'm trying to put this down and I'm going to pick this little thing up, this stone or whatever it is, and I'm going to carry it instead of the addiction, like actually creating like a physical um, talisman, um, I found really powerful. That is the coolest answer. I love rocks. That is so amazing. That is so cool. Um, okay. And then the last one is, why do you think a sober life is a better life? Oh, I think, I mean, I think life is like, it's a scavenger hunt in so many ways. And it's like an intention driven scavenger hunt. So I think being sober, it just enables you to be able to catch more clues than I think you do when you're not as sharp, right? I think, and some people may argue like, well, this makes me sharper or this, but I think, you know, that um, 
the clarity of perspective just gives you a lot more room to navigate the adventure that is life. So, and you don't have as much downtime from, you know, stupid decisions. That's what I thought. Like, you know, there was, there was a lot of time where I was hung over or where I just felt like garbage. Um, and these days, you know, that, that's not a thing. If I feel like garbage is because of, you know, something that's gone on or something, it's not because of something I put in my body. Unless it was too many chips, you know? <laughs> um, I love you. I think love you're you too. so... Thank you for me. You're just incredible, and I just fully understand that, um, as I said earlier, Amy and I have taken, like, workshops from the same writing coach, and I am... I just fully understand why she wanted to publish your book first because you are so incredible and I'm so grateful to be connected to you. So thank you so much. Likewise. Amy, I wonder if when people hear this and they feel the connection to you, they feel like um, they understand like what you're saying and you wrote this book. Can you tell us, I know the book's not coming out I think Jenna said till December, but yep. can you tell us what the name of the book is and where to find it so that if somebody does feel drawn to you, that's where they can find you? Thank you for asking. I'm getting used to doing this. I'm because that's not, yeah, I've advertised things for other people and now I'm doing it for myself, which feels weird. Um, but it's the most important thing I've ever done. So I'll do it. Um, it's called What We've Forgotten. And uh, you can also find me at whatweforgotten.com or amymiranda.com. Um, but the book comes out on December 12th and it's available for pre-order now. And there's also going to be an Oracle deck that comes out in February, but it's really an interdimensional adventure. So it's, it's a bit about my story, but it's also, you know, it's mostly about magic and about the reclamation of magic and adventure in everyday life. I love that. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Soberly Ever After. We hope the podcast gives you support and a place of no judgment to listen to our stories and to share yours with us. Until next time, a sober life is a better life.